Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast. And today I'm going to talk a bit about the current state of the market and Bitcoin's new highs for 2019, uh, pushing up against 5,800. Talk a little bit about what's going on there. Uh, talk broadly about decentralized finance. I'm going to start calling this whole Maker DAO die and the lending and so forth related to that as a decentralized finance i continue to think it's fascinating and i continue to think that there are opportunities to participate in that as it develops so i'll talk a bit about that uh eos uh eos has launched their resource exchange or rex as they're calling it and that could be interesting to uh, for generating some kind of passive income so you can basically um, uh, put your eos and the resources associated with that up and uh, people can uh, lend those or lease those from you and i'll talk about how that works a little bit and just kind of the ideas of potentially generating some income but i think more importantly it's for reducing resource cost for developers but uh, we'll cover that later uh, tezos staking it, i haven't talked a lot about it but it is something that uh, i'll touch base on real quickly it's an interesting way of doing it it's actually pretty easy to do uh, everyone who has tezos should probably be probably be um, delegating and staking and then it just you know easily gets paid to you and so forth so i'll talk a little bit about how that works and then staking in general and potential cash flow opportunities there i, I look at it more as interest but we'll, we'll cover that in a bit also there's some uh I should note some interesting things that you have to consider uh, and what the return will actually be in the long run, how things develop. So we'll cover that. Facebook looks like they might be uh, launching their own stable coin, which could be kind of interesting. I'm not a big fan of Facebook, but it uh, looks like they're talking to the likes of MasterCard, Visa, other partners to try and raise a billion dollars for a stable coin that they launch. Uh, for them, it may make sense because they're a real big global network and having a stable coin that can uh, be used across the world could be pretty interesting and, and reduce some friction you know, related to their payment systems and so forth. So it could be an interesting thing, but uh, also very interesting that they are uh, looking at the stable coin uh, specifically. And again, these are rumors, but uh, we'll see what comes out. And then finally, I, I kind of want to touch bases on the macroeconomic picture as far as the U.S. debt goes, the outlook for debt. It's supposed to uh, get pretty crazy in the early 2020s where uh, the interest um, is going to be quite high on the debt. You know, we're spending a lot of money. The economy, you know, is uh, for the most part doing okay. Uh, I think there are some skewedness in it, but I want to kind of talk about how, as the U.S. economy develops, how that might influence crypto and decentralized finance in general, and uh, what triggers may cause even faster adoption in the crypto space should the, should the conditions occur. So without giving out uh, too much on that idea, I will start talking from the top, and we'll start just with the... Um, the state of Bitcoin. So the big news there is that Bitcoin's market cap has surpassed a hundred billion. Uh, so we're kind of uh, uh, kind of in somewhat of a bull market, I'd say. And I've been talking about this over the last few podcasts. And I think in my mind, it's actually pretty clear that uh, we've you know the bear market's behind us, and how strong this new bear mark bull market's going to be is you know up for debate. But I certainly think we're in, in a bull market and uh, looking at the sentiment across the board and just the, the news feeds and so forth. It looks like, you know, there's a widespread adoption. If you look at Square's uh, uh, cash 
app and and their uh, demand for Bitcoin there. People are buying more and more Bitcoin through that uh, application, and you know, but the the demand keeps on increasing over and over each month, and so it looks like people are picking up Bitcoin again, and that's kind of the retail investor. You also see the uh, the folks like uh, E Trade, Fidelity, and all these others at the kind of retail level um, talking about potentially including. Uh, some sort of Bitcoin trading or crypto trading. And so, the, again, there's broader adoption there. I think over time and over the rest of this year, you're just going to see it more and more normalized. And that's what we're kind of seeing at this point. We had our capitulation with kind of the big sell-off from last year. You know, there was the huge bubble. And then things kind of came down and kind of meandered for a bit. Uh, and then uh, we were at 6,000, I think, sometime last year. It fell off a cliff as a, there was a lot of liquidation and, and uh, stress that uh, I believe was occurring with a lot of crypto companies, causing them to dump assets. But now I think we're firmly past that. We're firmly um, into this new era. And I think this new era, I'd like to see it be a responsible era era of growth where it's not too crazy. We don't take off and you know get to 20,000, 50,000 or anything crazy like that and create a mania. I think if we can build, you know, in a, in a, in a steady fashion and if it, the price can appreciate in a steady fashion, I think we'll all be better off in the end. So overall bullish on Bitcoin. That's my feeling at this point, bullish, uh, for the most part across the market. I think that I, what I'm seeing is if the projects are sound, you're seeing either you know sideways movement or a little bit of appreciation. If the projects are really terrible, then what you're seeing is them really not moving anywhere or staying low. And I don't think we're going to have one of those eras where just everything that uh, is listed or is talked about or is ICO just pumps. I mean, those lays are long gone. But you do see a little bit of that on the uh, Binance chain right now. Anything that's listed there kind of gets the Binance bump, if you will. But I think in general, uh, what we're seeing is a maturing of the industry. We're also seeing some interesting things with decentralized finance, which I said I wanted to talk about. And I'll segue into that where with things like MakerDAO and uh, DAI and uh, the coming multi-collateral system for that, we're seeing the creation of this decentralized banking. We're seeing uh, these debt positions that people can lock up, you know, their crypto assets and then borrow against them. Um, we're seeing things like Dharma and Compound, where you can generate interest on those. And these are all driven by smart contracts that are transparent, where collateral is transparent, where you can see where the assets are, how much assets there are. The conditions are clear. You know, if you need to have a hundred percent, if you need one hundred fifty percent collateral to borrow, you know, things like that. Those are all very transparent. And so, what we're developing, and what say, you know, I'm focusing on MakerDAO at this point because it's it's a pretty prominent prominent uh, player in this decentral decentralized finance space, is that they're you know manipulating or changing the stability fee. Um, and they are going to be adding multi-collateral in the future. They're going to be adding a savings rate. And they're going to have all of these levers to try and influence the the, the peg. And so right now, DAI, you know, there was a little bit of celebration that things were moving in the right direction. It moved above a dollar a little bit. But it's since dropped back down. I think today it's at about 98 cents. And so they keep on raising the stability fee. I think it's close to 20% at this point. And it's actually quite interesting to listen to their, I believe it's a, their weekly governance and, and risk management meetings. Uh, they're on SoundCloud. Maybe they'll link them in the, the uh, uh, 
the video here and on the website. So make sure you subscribe to YouTube, SoundCloud, and uh, check out the website. And I'll put the information about where you can listen to their uh, weekly meetings. But it's actually quite interesting to listen to them talk and discuss, you know, what they can do to try and, you know, hold that $1 peg, get above it. And right now the goal is to keep it above a dollar. There seems to be a lot of people holding a lot of die, you know, and I I think as it moves above a dollar, you're going to have a lot of people dump, you know, who are these market makers or whoever else who are holding on to it. And then that'll push it back down. So I think there's a lot more supply uh, than there is demand at this point. And so they got to find the right mix there. But in doing so, they may overshoot and some interesting things may happen as well. So we'll see. This is a very, very much an experiment. And they often reference, you know, uh, central banking authorities like Bernanke or Greenspan or Yellen and others, uh, which I kind I find kind of funny being that we're in this kind of decentralized space, this crypto space that is that is supposed to be, you know, very uh, or had originated in this anti-banking, anti-central bank sort of sentiment. And now we come full circle where, you know, we're having discussions about how to basically perform the central banking and governance in a decentralized fashion. So I find that very humorous and ironic, but, uh, you know, very interesting. And so those things are happening. And as you're looking at these as opportunities, which I often do, is, you know, how are these things developing? How can you operate within these systems? Uh, You know, how can you gain uh, yield uh, or how can you achieve yield uh, using these systems? How can you leverage using these systems? And then what is the effect of others doing this on a larger scale and as things grow? You know, so at some point in the future, we may end up having a financial crisis um, brought on in the crypto space, you know, funny enough. And then that could definitely occur by over leveraging or by, you know, dramatic increases in the stability fee and liquidations happening and that cascading into, say, Ether and other portions of the collateral. So it's or if those say if Ether moves, you know, and has a lot of volatility that affects, you know, Maker and die and all these other things. So it's it's very, very interesting. And I, I encourage you if you have the mindset and the, you know, the uh, wherewithal to to focus on it, to really dig in and understand the mechanics of what's going on, because when new things like this develop uh, and as they're developing, there are typically opportunities that few see and where there are opportunities that few see there, the opportunities can be quite large. And so it's something that I've been studying and focusing on for quite a bit over the last several weeks. And I've listened to a lot of their meetings, a lot of the podcasts that they uh, put out uh, based on their weekly meeting, really trying to understand the mindset and the theories and the application of what they're trying to do. And then also trying to understand, you know, the, the relationship between Ethereum, uh, because it's single collateral, you can only use Ethereum as collateral at this point, you know, how that could change with multi-collateral, how the stability fee changes things, how that relates to the maker price, and then also how that could influence Ethereum in the future as things change, and even as, uh, you know, Ethereum changes with staking in the future. Um, So very interesting space, something to look into, Uh, definitely encourage it. And another aspect of that, though, is, you know, looking at things like Compound and Dharma, Uh, which, you know, I'm not encouraging leverage, but it's an interesting thing to look at if you hold Ether uh, or other collateral to try and uh, uh, be paid interest on those, you know, up to 14% in some cases, which is a crazy amount uh, for lending it and or, 
you may have uh, use cases for borrowing it. You know, the fees can be relatively high, but you can borrow crypto as well. So I find that uh, interesting in a maturing of the space. So with that said, let's switch over to EOS and Rex. So EOS, some people love EOS, some people hate EOS. I think EOS has a particular place in this ecosystem. It's kind of like, in in my mind, it's somewhat of a decentralized uh uh, maybe decentralized, it may be a distributed AWS. You have these servers that uh, um, you st- can stake your EOS and you can uh, obtain resources. So bandwidth, CPU, memory, things like that. If you have EOS, you have a claim to a certain amount of resources. And those resources, if you're a developer and you don't, you know, you want to provide that a service to your customers, then you need to have, you know, an amount of resources that could handle the amount of people that you have on your system. And so you had traditionally have to buy a lot of EOS and that could be very expensive. And, you know, it kind of has impeded potentially some development at this point. Now with the EOS Rex or EOS Rex, that's the resource exchange where you can actually basically lend out your EOS and uh, allow other people to use those EOS to gain resources. And so the cost of um, deploying your app is significantly less, maybe more than 99% less at this point, because instead of purchasing the full price, you're instead you know, uh, leasing them out from people who are just sitting on the EOS. And so you can kind of think of it as a lending uh, mechanism as well. And it, and it is, it's kind of leasing resources, leasing space. Um, maybe it's equivalent to some sort of real estate leasing where if you have EOS tokens, you own a certain amount of real estate uh, related to the capacity of compute and bandwidth, and now you're lending that out to others at uh, some rate. Now, I assume at this point that the amount of EOS lent is much higher than the demand, but that could change over time, and then you could have some sort of ROI um, or some sort of interest, if you will, um, or income from simply leasing your uh, EOS. And so we're, again, getting into this kind of cash flow situation uh, where there's some opportunities there. So if you're looking at MakerDAO, to kind of recap, if you're looking at MakerDAO and DAI and these other things, you, know, you may be able to, or even Ethereum, you may be able to lock up your those assets and then uh, lend them out to someone else and gain a reasonable rate with EOS. Now you can lend out your EOS so that people can gain resources and gain some sort of uh, interest rate or some sort of return. And then, you know, another way of doing that is staking, more traditional staking, and that'll, that dovetails into Tezos, which provides, you know, this uh, staking mechanism where if you hold Tezos, you can delegate your stake or you can stake yourself if you have, I believe, 10,000 uh, Tezos. I, they might have changed it, brought it down to 8,000. I haven't kept track if that vote passed. Um, but if you have eight to 10,000, you can stake yourself on your own system. And uh, it's a little bit of IT work and so forth. But if you don't want to deal with that, then you can delegate your stake to someone else, to some other pool um, or other uh, stake or other delegate. And then you'll get a percentage of that minus uh, the fees that they charge. And so the staking more or less has a component if uh, of, uh, you know, you have some sort of amount of Tezos, you have some sort of, you know, bond that you need to retain. And then if you're a bad practice, if you're uh, someone who um, is a... Uh, 
what's the right word if you're doing something nefarious i suppose um, you could have your stake slashed or confiscated so essentially when you're delegating to some pool or or some other uh, delegate they have to hold a certain amount of money in bonds they ha- can take on so much stake based on how much bond they have and then they charge a fee um, some percentage, sometimes between 10 and 20% or so of the, uh, of the uh, rewards that they get. And so then they're kind of gaining these rewards over time. And, you know, some of them will add more money to their bond so that they can have more capacity to allow more people to delegate to them. And so I found that uh, staking with Tezos is actually um, one of the easiest ways of doing proof of stake, uh, say, versus something like, uh, you know, Decred, where you have to buy this ticket and, you know, you might get the ticket and you have to bid on it and do these other things. Whereas Tezos, you simply, you know, just point to an address and everything's taken care of and you can track the performance on the blockchain and you can track the rewards that are due on the blockchain and so forth. So if you're if you're looking uh, to, and I'm not saying that you should get a coin simply because it has staking, because obviously if the, if the project or the coin isn't a good project, then you kind of have your uh, risk uh, from capital appreciation or depreciation or, you know, your, your asset could depreciate and you still might be making some return on your staking. But if, you know, it plummets because it's garbage, then it's no good. So you definitely want to be involved in projects that are that are going to be around and are, that are on a growth trajectory. But um, I will say that the, the Tezo staking is very simple, very easy. Uh, they have the potential to be a quite a decentralized system because of this mechanism. I think the most similar uh, system might be Cardano when it eventually launches. I'd have to look at uh, Ethereum, the exact sort of proof of stake system that they're looking at doing. But it's it's not the same as like EOS, which is a delegated proof of stake system. But in EOS, you vote for your block producers. Um, and they retain all of the EOS, whereas with Tezos, you can delegate your your coins to some block producer, and you get a portion of that back, and so you're rewarded for doing that. So it's different depending on what what sort of platform you're on, but it is a very interesting cash flow mechanism, and it is you know reasonably lucrative at this point. It's a reasonable rate of return. However, there's been some uh, some publications that uh, I've read recently where, you know, it's not as clear as people think. So right now, with uh, Tezos, say, for example, the, the, the staking is really meant to, you know, compensate for inflation. So the block producers are paid uh, Tezos and new Tezos is created, Tezis or whatever you want to call them, um, as a payment for securing the blockchain um, and producing blocks, I should say. And uh, by doing that, you're causing inflation, right? So there's inflation across the board. And in theory, if everybody stakes, then, you know, you're just basically staying even. Your real return is basically zero because everybody's staking and everyone's getting a portion of the reward proportional to their actual stake. Now, if only a portion of the people are staking, then you're going to gain at the expense of others. So the people who are not staking, you're basically siphoning off value from them at the end of the day. And obviously, the rational thing would be for everybody to stake, but everyone's not aware and everyone doesn't want to deal with it. Um, But eventually, you may see that, uh, you know, people are more custodians, like, for example, Coinbase uh, now provides a service 
uh, a staking service for Tezos so people can hold all their Tezos over there. Coinbase will do the staking for them and then they'll take, you know, 20% fee of the uh, staking rewards. And so I think over time you're going to see these kind of custodians that will perform the staking for um for you and you'll it'll be interesting to see how that influences the project how you know the voting is done in in those situations you know and how you know it's perceived by the community because a lot of people with bitcoin now will complain that for example there's only a handful of pools and you know it only takes a few pools before you have over 51 percent. so in in essence they control the system you know with tezos it looks like well uh, you know there's tons and tons of people staking and quite a few block producers as well and so it looks like a very decentralized system but over time you know i'd argue that things become more and more centralized now i think the trick is is the ability and the friction to kind of switch you know if you can switch to another delegate if you don't like um, what they're doing and it's very easy to do then that's great and so all of these proof of stake systems try to do that and even with proof of work mining even though people focus on the pools um all those pools are made up of thousands and thousands of miners and and individual machines. And so, you know, they could theoretically switch to different pools just as easily. You know, you just change the, uh, the uh, address and and there you go. So it's unclear what the ultimate decentralization will be, but I think an important component of overall decentralization is that, um, or at least maintaining it is kind of the, ability for whales to develop and control things. I think in EOS, you might actually have that problem now or develop that problem where you you develop uh, just whales that have too much control. I think that system might be skewed toward that. Whereas Tezos, I think it'll take a lot longer before you have huge whales other than, say, the Tezos Foundation, which um, is a block producer and and they uh, produce, I think there's quite a few of them. I think that's a method of generating income for the foundation, um, but also to to retain some some level of control. But over time, hopefully, that's dispersed out and it becomes more decentralized. And so, anyway, uh, I guess the idea being staking is interesting. Proof of stake is on the rise now. I, I think that there's a place for proof of stake. I do think proof of work has a very particularly interesting governance system. I won't talk too much about that in this podcast, but maybe I'll make one specifically, kind of looking at proof of stake and proof of work in general. But I think the big idea with proof of stake is, you know, there's, well, not a big idea, but one kind of important idea is that proof of stake doesn't have different levels of, of um, different levels. How do I put it? So maybe just by talking about an example, it would be easier. In proof of work systems, you have the full node operators and you have the miners, right? And so the full node operators get to choose what software they run and the uh, miners get to choose the software as well, but they also produce the blocks. And so there's kind of this two chambers, if you will, you know, there has to be coordination between those two and the miners can go elsewhere. They're not actually fixed to that particular project, which can be good or bad. But for the, in the case of Bitcoin, it's definitely the dominant uh, chain and uh, they the, there's specific hardware ASICs that are generated for them. So they're, so they're more or less sticking to Bitcoin, but there's a handful of other projects that uh, retain the SHA-256 algorithm. 
but they're kind of their own cohort. And then you have all of the full nodes and, you know, there's several thousand of those and those nodes get to choose which, you know, software they run. And so there's this kind of balance. It's kind of think of it like the Senate and the Congress where there's these two chambers that kind of have to coordinate uh, and work together. Whereas in a proof of stake system, it's kind of like you have one chamber and, you know, the people who hold the coins and the people who create the blocks and the, you know, they're the same people and they can't be, they can't be disconnected. Uh, so if there's someone who's uh, malicious or if someone gets, you know, more than or can co coordinate more than 51%, it's like you can't exit the system and you can't, um, uh, you can't have two parties voting. It's basically all all or nothing. That's a very crude way of explaining it. But in general, it's it's a different governance mechanism uh, when you look at the different ones. And I think that's okay. And I think some people get hung up on which one's better and which one's worse. I think they're just all different and they will all serve different purposes. And they are, all have different optimization parameters, um, including, you know, uh, you know, fewer nodes and fewer block producers uh, means that you can potentially have faster propagation times, faster block production times, and uh, higher performance, whereas something that's more decentralized is, is, from a governing point of view, you know, more sound from a democratic point of view. However, it's going to have, you know, issues with uh, block propagation, uh, block size, you know, things of that nature, redundancy. So it's going to be less efficient, but that's, that's okay. And I think you see that with Bitcoin, where it's you know, in some ways, maybe the least efficient blockchain, uh, but it's the most valuable. And it's the most valuable because of a lot of reasons. But uh, it's, it just goes to show that there's different values in different aspects of different projects. So lastly, I want to talk about the US economy and how uh, things look like that we have an increasing debt load and people have been talking about that for quite some time but by the year 2024 or so and really in the 2020s it looks like things could potentially you know spiral out of control as far as interest debt load potentially um, interest rates and, and the onset of inflation so once we once we start hitting an inflationary era I think people are going to really be looking at crypto a lot harder and they're going to be looking at the current financial system and and becoming a, a, a bit concerned because right now we've gotten away with low inflation and we have you know low unemployment and high overall un high overall employment although I think the participation rates a little bit low uh, compared to historical standards but uh, unemployment is low you know the economy's humming along and the stock market's up and you know someone could say okay everything's rosy but we haven't seen the onset of inflation bad inflation just yet and the uh fed has raised rates to about 2.5 and the yield curve's somewhat flat and so you have all these things going on uh that seem to indicate this this conflict of you know are we heading into a recession is the economy strong you know we're kind of in this balancing act at the moment which is okay and is you know probably healthy but if at some point we start moving into an inflationary environment, that's where things become very tricky because once we get into an inflationary environment, then rates have to keep rising to kind of keep that in check. Now, maybe they rise and it slows down the economy so much and inflation is kept in check as well. Um, or, you know, it gets out of control and all that money that was printed over the last 10 years uh, starts to come out of the woodworks and, and uh, becomes an issue. Um, and so there's there's kind of this you know fine line that we have to skate 
and we do have an increasing debt load and we do have uh, interest rates, you know, higher than they were. And so the, the debt is becoming more expensive. And even more so, if, if uh, the rates, if inflation does pick up, you know, rates will have to go up and the debt will become even more expensive. And then as it becomes more expensive, uh, people begin to worry that, you know, there's a ton of this, you know, all the newly issued debts going to just pay interest alone. Then they start looking at this as, you know, just a money printing machine. It's a banana republic sort of situation where, uh, we're just printing money to pay interest. And so then you may even have a, a greater panic in the uh, the system and inflation may rise even more. And overall, I think we just can't afford a high inflationary environment at this point. Um, and once we see that, then I think, like I said, people will begin looking at crypto more seriously. And if it does spiral into a more severe financial crisis, it could be quite serious because it's based on kind of a global overload of debt, which, you know, as always, that uh, over leveraging and debt and and a lot of money printing don't end in uh, typically good things. And so if we do see another big crisis or financial issue over the next uh, five to 10 years, don't know when it'll occur. It could be sooner, it could be later. I think that'll be probably the final kind of uh, um, memo or message or uh, shot across the bow to say, let's take crypto more seriously and integrate that as a more, you know, integrated part of the global financial system, for better or for worse. I mean, crypto is certainly not stable. All the tools are certainly not there at this point. But given enough time, I think we'll have built uh, a pretty interesting uh, system of decentralized finance that could uh, run alongside, you know, our, our current system and uh, augment it in a lot of good ways, but also provide, you know, prop potentially an alternate for a lot of people that become worried about uh, the status of the uh, current financial system as as the number of years go by and uh, and uh, things develop. So that was a lot of things to cover this uh, podcast. Uh, a lot of bits that could you know, we could jump into even deeper and talk about forever. Um, but uh, I'll close out this podcast there. And as always, remember to uh, follow on SoundCloud and on YouTube. Subscribe there. I'll be posting this with an audiogram on YouTube. Uh, you can also uh, download the podcast with iTunes um, and uh, follow on uh, Twitter and like on Facebook as well. And as always, check out the website. I'll, I'll post the uh, podcast there and any additional information. I'm going to try and generate an article a week as well, but that uh, is always very difficult with uh, my busy schedule. Um, but as always, I will see you next time on the Blockchain Podcast. <laughs>